I'm Julie Hyde, and I believe you can't be a leader of others until you are a leader of self. It all starts with leading you. So if you are ready to be the best leader that you can be, you're in the right place. I'll be chatting to a diverse range of leaders who will spill the beans on their leadership, how they changed the game, insights into their mindset, and how they built the courage and resilience to be a modern leader with impact. Let's get into it. Really excited to introduce you to Sass Petherwick today, who is obsessed with helping you heal your self-doubt. She is the founder of the Self-Belief School and the Self-Belief Coaching Academy and has completed her master's dissertation on the experience of self-doubt. She's also the podcast host of Courage and Spice, the number one podcast for humans with self-doubt, and I love that name. Sass is on a mission to help humans move from understanding the root causes of self-doubt to cultivating tangible and sustainable self-belief, self-acceptance, self-worth, and self-trust, and that just sounds amazing. So welcome, Sass. I'm so happy to be here, Julie. What a, what a fun podcast to be talking to you. <laughs> We're like thousands of miles apart and technology is enabling us to do this. So fun. I know. I love it. You've just had breakfast. I've just had dinner. <laughs> so We're all fueled up. We're all good. So I'm super excited to be diving into this topic with you because I think you'd have to say that, you know, a good majority of us have been touched by self-doubt at some stage in our life. So I'm really keen to get your tips and your insights into this topic. So first of all, you know, this podcast is all about leading you and how we lead self. But I'm really keen to understand, like, if you were the leader of the world for a day, what would be the three things that you would do? What it makes me think about this kind of question is how we love simple answers, right? We want the fantasy. What's the one tip to be confident is the question I get asked all the time. Oh, yeah. What's true is that our world has never been this complex and this ambiguous. And we are facing some existential stuff right now, right? We've just been through this global pandemic our entire work culture is changing as a result of the work from home balance and we're facing the climate emergency and it feels to me like there's been no time in human history where we have needed humans who can hold a bit of that complexity and ambiguity and uncertainty and of course that is all underneath our self-doubt what what it means to be with our self-doubt is to be with uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity right we have these things we want to do but often we don't we don't know what's going to happen so we hold back we wait and then time passes and our world needs us to not do that i think capitalism makes everything seem urgent and it makes us feel like we have to be busy and we have to be constantly doing and what i have found is that the times that I've grown the most. It's actually when we slow down enough to kind of go, what's going on for me? What's actually happening here in my relationships, in my work, in my life? Am I living a life that I like? Like, I think that's a question I ask people a lot. Do you like your life? 
what's going on for you when I ask you that question? So if I was leader for a day, I'd be inviting people to slow down, to really reflect, like knowing who you are, I think is the most important gift you can give yourself, everyone in your life and the rest of the world, no matter what you do for work or for your mission in the world. Knowing who you are means that everything you do is anchored into something that feels meaningful to you. And there's something as well, I think, about being willing to reflect on where you're going. It's why I'm such a huge advocate for coaching. I think it doesn't matter where you're at in your life or what your circumstances are. Having a trusted advisor to offer wider perspectives and allow you to sort of play through some of the things that are confusing or upsetting or that you haven't quite figured out yet. For most of us, you know, you know, many of us go through therapy and that's great. To go from good to great is really where coaching comes into its own. So if you can find anyone that will support you and hold some space for you to just figure those things out, it's like your leadership expands into, into something else. You see what else is possible for you. Ah, I love that response. And we're so aligned because <laughs> I have actually written a book about busy and um, I totally agree that I think, yeah, like you say, this capitalism and um, I really feel like we're just living in this urgent economy now where everything has to be at the click of a finger. So, oh my goodness. We can see what happens when you believe that that's true, right? Like at the time we're recording this, the world is watching Elon Musk, who is apparently one of our great leaders, right? He is He's deemed to be one of our great leaders, however we all may personally feel about him. And he's walked into a company that's been valued at $44 billion, and he is working very, very fast. He's making very quick decisions without really taking into account all of the complexity, all of the very good reasons why things are operating the way they are, why perhaps they have the number of staff that they had at Twitter, you know, and, and perhaps why those particular roles and functions existed. And he's gone in and he's made very fast decisions. He's done that very publicly. And he's kind of the man, right? He's he's presenting himself as the man. This is what happens, I think, when we don't embody and kind of accept that self-doubt can be a positive thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? right, yeah. Like, actually, if he slowed down and really reflected on what matters here, if he really slowed down and had a trusted advisor who wasn't agreeing with everything he said, then maybe he'd be making different choices. And maybe yes. the company would survive a bit longer than it's probably going to. Yeah, that's true. Back to your um, point at the very start. He's not taking into account the human element of this either. So I don't believe that there's a human approach to this. So, yes. Absolutely. Okay. So your story I found just fascinating and I really encourage people to have a look at Sasa's website because how she has told her story on the website is just so eloquent and just really impactful. So uh, I've had to pick snippets out of that, which was really hard. Can you share with us, you know, I suppose the biggest game-changing moment for you that led you to the work that you're doing now? Um, I remember the exact moment, Julie. I'm so glad you read that. And thank you. That's really kind of you to say that um, my story touched you. Um, I 
have always had, like I'm an Antipodean, so I imagine most of your listeners will relate, um, I've always had a bit of a problematic relationship with alcohol. And I worked in the city in London for 12, 15 years in quite alpha dominated type work hard, play hard cultures. And I always prided myself, I think, on surviving that and thriving in it. I was quite well rewarded in lots of different ways for for basically denying who I think I really am underneath all of that emotional armour. And I remember January, I think it was January the 2nd or 3rd, waking up and just thinking, I can't keep doing this. And I've got to go back to work on Monday and I'm being groomed for my, who was my COO, I'm being groomed for his job. And the thought of having his job actually brings me out in hives. And I realized that I just didn't want to make that next step. I was a head of department, had a team of over 60 people. It was really a really challenging environment. And I and I just thought, I just, I've worked so hard to get here. I'm from the smallest town in New Zealand. <laughs> and I all, you know, I've traveled a lot and I've, I was one of the kids who couldn't wait to get, you know, on the plane and go to the UK and do my OE. And I worked so hard to get to where I was. And when I got there, I realized that I didn't really know if it was the work that would bring me any kind of real fulfillment. It was just that moment of, is this me for the rest of my days? And just in that moment, I just decided I'm going to, I'm going to knock the drinking on the head. Just not going to not have so much Pinot Noir, just to see how, how that goes. There was some intuitive knowing that's probably going to help. And the thing about anyone who, you know, enjoys wine time, when it's not just for joy, it's usually because it's a way of helping us to manage this complex, fraught, difficult world we live in. And so what I found was I had to face all of that. So to cut a long story short, I spent really a year just kind of coming to terms with what did it mean to not hide from my life? Because I think drink's a great way of sort of running away, but not really leaving. You know, you kind of get to escape, but you don't have to leave it. So When I was really in my life, I realized, oh, there's all these things that aren't really quite working for me. And I was terrified of what that would mean because I'd never not been ambitious. I'd never not had a big job and all of the rewards that go with that. But I knew that something had to change. The thing that changed was um, I took voluntary redundancy and I In that period, I had about three months where I was sort of figuring out what my next step was going to be. I got invited to go to a coach training course. And within the first hour, I was like, oh, this feels different to me. This feels like something good in my life. And I wanted more of it. But I also had that voice in the back of my head, you can't make a job out of this. Like, you know, it can't feel this good and be work. Like I don't, I couldn't, couldn't reconcile that. But eventually I did. I started working with clients on the side and I carried on a sort of four day a week corporate job for a contract for a couple of years while I built up my practice. Those two years of just doing both, I was exhausted and so alive and like had no idea if it was going to work, but I felt more like myself than I had ever really. And I was, I just want to do this. If I can just do this, then amazing. 
So, and that eventually led to going back to grad school and 10 years later, here we are. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. So do you believe that self-doubt, so it sounds like that, that it was intuition sort of telling you that something was wrong, but it was, do you believe that the self-doubt was at the core of you living the life where you were numbing from what was really going on with, with the alcohol? Yeah, I think that there's a sort of mainstream understanding of self-doubt, that it's basically we we hold ourselves back and we're kind of a bit meek and shy and quite introverted and hesitant and all of those things. What I know of self-doubt is that actually it can show up as overwork. The research is a little shaky, but it's around about 70%-ish of us in roles where our intelligence matters. So if you're in any kind of knowledge economy type role, 70% of us are likely to experience self-doubt. And that can be in your job, but it can also be at friendships. You can overwork at keeping your family sorted and organized. Whatever version of sort of, I've got to do this better, So it might be, I have to be the smartest one. I have to be the most put together one. I have to be the one that's the busiest. Whatever way we overwork, it's usually because that feels safest to us. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't thought of self-doubt like that and sort of playing out that way because when you uh, were just talking, I was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, people pleasing, like really working hard to please people. So, yeah, so that really makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that that kind of overgiving. And when we're overworking or overgiving, these are the kind of overfunctioning ways of of, that self-doubt shows up. And they're patterns of beliefs and behaviors that really serve us well, right? So when we are overgiving, we're in that place of people-pleasing. What we're basically saying is, you don't matter as much as me, so I'm going to put my needs below yours. So I'll, I'll take care of you. And it means that we never have to be with our fears, which are usually something around conflict or abandonment or being disliked in some way. It's like, if that feels really unsafe to you, it makes total sense to me that you would overgive to avoid those fears. Yeah. Okay. I know that you say that self-doubt holds us back from being our fully expressed selves and it, it, it culls our spirit and wraps us in defeat which I think is really, really powerful. Are there common root causes to people's self-belief or is it really different for everyone in terms of what manifests as the self-doubt? It's such a great question and I think it's actually both. So I think we all have our very personal, subjective, individual experiences. The the messages that we got from our families of origin, from our schooling, our workplaces, our friendship groups, wherever we are surrounded by other people, they gave us lots of messages about who we need to be to belong. Yeah. But we also have our own ways of interpreting what's happening. So we have these stories and these experiences and these relationships that we we sort of inherit from other people. And then we, as humans, do this thing called meaning making, where we're like, well, if my boss didn't say hello to me in the hallway, then I make that mean something, usually about me, not he must be busy or she must be really busy. 
or oh, she's got that meeting. I totally get why she just maybe didn't see me. We go, oh, that means I'm for it, right? Something's wrong. And as well as that, we have the wider cultural narratives, right, that we all live in. So we live in a world that is dominated by a specific group of people, hold the most power, hold the most wealth, the most influence, have access to the most resources. And the further away we are from that group of the folks that have the power, the further we are away from from that, the less power we feel we have and the more wrong we're made to feel by media, by the cultural stories, all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, when we think about leadership, most of us think about a white bloke, probably called Dave, in a blue pinstripe suit. Unfortunately, yes. In the UK, there are more CEOs called Dave than there are of all women in the top 500 companies. So there's a damn good reason why that image pops into most of our minds, right? And I think what we can do as coaches is support people to say, but what else could be true? I think, you know, part of the reason that we have these stories is that it's kind of like we just want to belong. We want to belong to the groups that we're surrounded with, to ourselves and to the world at large, right? So we have these individual stories, but then what I see are there's patterns. There are really clear patterns. And, you know, having worked with hundreds and hundreds of clients now, having developed a, a coaching methodology around this work, I can see that there are four really core patterns of beliefs and behaviors that help us to make sense of self-doubt. And, the, and they show up as overwork, overgiving, feeling overwhelmed, and overthinking. So most of us have one or two where we sort of resort to those patterns because it feels more safe than looking at the alternative. So we mm. talked about a couple of those. But feeling overwhelmed is that sense of, oh, it's just too much. It's really hard for me. I don't know what to do. So we kind of wait to be to be rescued or we, we feel a bit like we're chaotic and we're not quite good enough at adulting. I worked last year with a client. She was a, a lawyer. She was on the partner track. And during lockdown, she said she'd gone full goblin, <laughs> full goblin mode. And she hadn't <laughs> opened her mail in like six months. She's like, I'm losing sleep over this and I can't seem to kind of get my shit together. But actually in her professional life, really, really competent, very smart woman. And I sort of feel like that sometimes what can be confusing about self-doubt is that it will show up in different spaces in our lives where we just feel too, like it's too much. You know, we feel a bit in over our heads. And so that's what shows up. So it's not confusing to me to see that someone who is deeply successful in one area of their lives can feel like they are failing madly in another area. Um, and you see this a lot with folks who it's like everything is there, but I don't have the relationship or everything's going great, but my relationship with my body is really touch and go. And that's really common at the moment, isn't it? Really you know, common. With people you know? experiencing burnout, etc. Exactly, exactly. So the answer to your question is it's both. It's both. We all have our individual experiences. We have our meaning making and we have the stories that come from the culture that kind of feed into our self-doubt. And there are some patterns that I'm seeing that are very common. And when I share my kind of model with folks, they're like, oh, my God, I'm totally this and this. Like that partners <laughs> up. And it can feel like, oh, now I can understand it. It's like this helps me to then take the next step. 
Yeah. I'm not crazy. I'm validated here. I can now move forward. That's awesome. So are you able to share just some quick tips for people to overcome or even embrace their self-doubt so to enable them to move forward with a bit more confidence or, you know, to create a plan? So would you say, Julie, that your people tend to be kind of the folks that do overwork? It sounds like from your book and your work that that would be the main. Yeah, I would say, look, I'm really focused on people who are, you know, wear that busyness as a badge of honor. So yeah, so the busyness, but, and yeah, the overwork, I would think overwork and the people pleasing like the. Your clients are overfunctioners. And that just means that you feel safer when you're doing things, mm-hmm. right? To stop and feel stuff and ponder feels a bit pointless, a bit like, well, yeah, but I've still got shit to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> so when I kind of work with clients who have that kind of pattern, the way that I suggest, particularly if you're an overworker, if you've got some, perhaps you relate to the idea of perfectionism and how I talked about it, showing up about being the busiest or the most put together or the organized one, the smartest one, whatever, however that shows up. My suggestion is actually to start to embrace compassion and imperfection. And it's totally okay if you want to punch me in the face right now, (laughs) because the thing about compassion and imperfection is that we have to do something that's a bit different to what we have been doing in order to create a new type of safety for ourselves. So because it feels safer to do stuff, what you find after a while is that I can't do enough to actually feel safe because there's always going to be something else there. So embracing compassion and imperfection is about, I mean, I, I share like little experiments you can try. Like just try talking to yourself with compassion 100% of the time for 24 to 48 hours. And every time you inevitably say something mean to yourself or forget that you're doing this this experiment you just say oh I'm really sorry okay yep compassion sorry I said that right we're starting again so you bring the compassion into even when you get it you know kind of mess up and the idea is that you just start to see how different it feels because for a lot of us who are doers we misinterpret compassion we think it's coddling because usually we've grown up in a house where you kind of got on with stuff and, you know, you worked your hardest, you do your best. All of these kinds of messages have come from our from our families and from our world. And I know growing up in New Zealand, that was always the, you know, you work hard and you don't put your hand up too many times. Don't get too big for your boots, all of that stuff, right? You might relate, you're nodding. To don't ask too many questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And especially if you're a girl. Because you'll be the worst thing ever, which is bossy. Yes. So the idea of showing yourself compassion is actually about kind of softening with yourself, right? That actually you don't have to get everything right. You're okay. You are enough right now for you. And the thing is that that won't happen overnight, right? There, That's not a quick fix, but it's a practice to, to bring into your life. And the more that you can speak to yourself with compassion, the more that you won't tolerate anyone else speaking to you without compassion. Yeah, I love that. So raising the standards. It's an inside job. Yeah. Right? Because actually when we don't, treat ourselves with compassion whenever anyone else is kind of being a dick to us 
then we just go, oh yeah, I needed that kick up the ass, you know? And actually, no, you know, and trust me, I've read thousands of papers on motivational theory. We are not motivated long-term in a robust way by anything other than compassion. So the way you do things really matters. The way you talk to yourself when you're doing the things that you're doing. And the thing about overfunctioners is that we get shit done. Leadership doesn't usually feel too scary to us. We're like, yep, if you just give it to me, I'll get it done, right? So for me, it's like, this is a tool to help you do the things you're here to do. But to do it in a way where you don't have to sacrifice your own sense of you know, being okay with you, your own sense of liking yourself. And the thing that starts to happen with that is that you get a little more comfortable with imperfection. Yeah. Okay, so you know what? I did seven things on my list today. That's amazing. And there's two things that I had to do and I didn't get them done. And that's okay because I'm human. How human of me to not do everything on my list. Maybe there was something wrong with the list. Maybe it's not me. Oh my God, I'm just looking at my list here and I'm like, no, yeah. I haven't ticked <laughs> enough stuff off my list today. It's like, And that's okay because you're human. So it just releases that pressure valve. So I love that. The way you talk to yourself is so important. And high achievers, high functioners can be very, very, very incredibly hard on themselves. So I think that awesome tips and I you know obviously when people are wanting more tips from Sass you can tune into her incredible podcast which really gets you thinking because you know my god I can't believe the time and it's just flown past and I could talk to you forever but I think that's a great (laughs) note to sort of finish the podcast on because I think that talks to a lot of us and there's so much gold in what you've shared with us throughout our short conversation. So Sass, I really, really thank you for your time. And I suppose just, is there a really short and snappy last message that you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Yeah, I would say that lots of people ask me, well, how do I just feel confident? Like, how do I just kind of embody self-belief? Like, just give me the quick tip. And it is a quick tip, but it takes time. Sorry, I can embrace paradox. (laughs) But confidence comes as a result of what we do. It doesn't come first. And the thing about it is that you're going to need some courage. And courage feels like ass because you only need courage when you're doing something that you're not sure what the outcome's going to be. Yeah. So everyone's like, yeah, courage. Oh, it's totally one of my values. And then you realize it feels like ass when you're doing it. It's the worst. Like, I'm like, oh, this is going to need courage. Great. (laughs) So don't require your courage to be wrapped in butterflies and unicorns. Like, let it be a bit shit. Let it feel a bit. It's meant to, right? You only need courage because you're doing something either new or something that feels edgy. And then once you have some competence, right? So courage equals competence, right? Because you're keeping going and that equals confidence. So a lot of people wait to have confidence before they start doing the thing. No, you don't need that. You need some courage just to start. Yeah. You already know what you need to do. You're smart. So start doing that. Break it down into the smallest things, start doing it, let it feel crappy, and then just keep going. And you will look back and go, oh, this does not feel crappy anymore. That's because you have confidence. Yeah. Beautiful ending. Thank you, Sass. And thank you for the amazing work that you're doing and for shining a light for so many. And thank you for being part of leading you today. Yay. <laughs>
Thank you so much. Thanks.